welcome to High Tide, Low Tide, the podcast where we talk about all things mental health and where we share our stories with the knowledge that it could just be the lifeline of hope for someone who is hurting and afraid that they're the only one. I'm your host, Lisa Scanlon, and I am so glad that you're here with me today. Just a little reminder here, guys, that we are discussing mental health in this episode, so we may touch on things like suicide or self-harm, which may be a trigger for you. As always, I'll pop resources in the show notes or know that you can call Lifeline 24-7 on 13 11 14. Hey, guys, and welcome back to High Tide, Low Tide. I hope you are all having an amazing day, and I am very happy to have my wonderful guest here with me today. Her name is Stephanie, so welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you, and thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm very happy to have you sitting here in my kitchen on this, well, I was going to say lovely Saturday, but I mean... Overcast. It's a little bit cloudy, but I do have my laundry out on the line. So I'm just hoping that it's cloudy, but no rain would be amazing. Let's manifest that. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I did ask Siri earlier and she said that there was not going to be any rain here. So I hope she doesn't let me down. Let's get into this episode. So would you like to start off by just giving us a bit of an introduction to who you are and what you do? So my name is Stephanie. I'm 30 years old. I am a yoga teacher. I own a yoga studio as of about a year and a half ago. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. (laughs) And I'm also a recently qualified naturopath. So I've just started up my own home practice, which is a little branch of um, the yoga studio, which is lovely. And I spend most of my time, I would say, at the beach when it's warm enough. Um, Hasn't been lately. No, not yet. (laughs) Yeah. I went for my first swim, actually, of the season um, yesterday, which was, yeah, still fresh, but (laughs) yeah, good enough to tolerate. Lovely. Um, But apart from that, I just love being outside. I recently got into gardening, which I thought was something that happens when you get quite old, but (laughs) apparently here we are. I really love propagating plants and Mm -hmm. repotting them. If you looked at my house, we have about maybe 40 plants going at the moment. Wow. So quite a little collection. So that's been my pastime. And We also have a pottery wheel at home, so when I can get to that, that's another pastime that I like doing for fun. But I love that and getting away in my van. I have a van called Mm -hmm. Sandy. Oh, Um, yeah. So when time permits, yeah, it's really nice to just be able to not even have to pack anything up and just go when I feel like it. That sounds amazing. I've been wanting to do the same thing. I would love to have one one day. Yeah, it's it's a commitment just because it's it's my only car and it's not always convenient driving around a van, you know, driving to the city. But it's, yeah, it works really well. So. Worth it in yeah. the long run. Yeah. You said you have a pottery wheel at home. That's yes. so amazing. <laughs> Last year I did a little like six-week throwing and, I don't know, pottery-type class where you had the wheel and everything. Mm, yep. um, and I was blown away at how hard it actually is. <laughs> it, it so is. I went into it thinking I'm going to nail this and I went <laughs> with my partner who had already done, I think, one or two terms of pottery and yeah. so – you know, he was kind of explaining it to me and he's like, you'll get the hang of it. And I was watching him thinking, what 
the hell? How, how are you doing that so well? But I think sometimes men just generally are like easily good at things sometimes. Mm. So I was trying to compare myself to him and, you know, he's making like vases and like Ugh. really big things and I'm struggling to even just make a teacup. I know. So I'm, I'm just perfecting the cup at the moment, which, yeah, yeah is still a work in progress. Yeah. But. I have to show you. You see that one? You Can you see that one there that has like the shells oh, stuck on the back? I made that. that so cute. <laughs> and there's a couple up the back. I'll show you afterwards. But the glazing part is really fun though because you can't tell yeah. how it's going to turn out until you you've fired it like until it's been through the yeah oven thing it's a bit so, of a surprise and sometimes I'll get handed pieces and I'm like are you sure that's mine I don't remember yeah. <laughs> dipping it in that kind of color but it's amazing it reacts so differently depending on like the day the temperature yeah. like the conditions and yeah yeah, which is, I guess, kind of like people, isn't it? It's like nothing's yeah, predictable. So, yeah. And yeah. yoga, what type of yoga is your favourite? Um, I think a few years ago I would have said vinyasa. I, I, Yeah, I still quite like a flowy type of yoga. Mm-hmm. I would say I've slowed down in my, if you can call it, older years. <laughs> um, so I still like you know, a, a vinyasa practice, maybe a bit slower, but I've really come to enjoy yin, which Ugh. is, yeah, not everyone's <laughs> no. cup of tea. I think, like, obviously there is huge benefits of yin, but I have always struggled, and this is, like, a, probably a lesson in itself, <laughs> that when I'm doing yin, because you're holding the poses for a longer time and it's slower, I find it hard to stay present. Mm. And so I'll be yeah. like sat in a friggin' pigeon pose, which is the <laughs> devil's pose for me. And I'm just like sitting there like, oh, what do I need to get at the shops on the way home? Or, yeah. you know, oh, I forgot to do this at work. I've got to do that first thing in the morning. So I find it, it hard to control my mind in a slower practice. Whereas if I'm in a really uh, a faster moving vinyasa flow or something, I'm just focused on solely what I'm doing at that time. Yeah, and I think it, that's almost what you said. It's like that's the point of it really <laughs> is it's a mental practice. I say to people, you know, you get physical benefits and it's pretty much the same for all yoga but mm-hmm. most of the, I guess, experience and growth comes from your mind when, you know, you sort of persist with something and then you notice after a few months actually maybe my mind is slowing down a little bit or it's getting a little bit easier to focus but I know this is what I hear from so many of my students is, you know, yin's hard and yeah, yeah, it's hard to focus. But I have recently started doing yin and sound bath workshops. So it's really nice because the sound almost gives you something to focus on Mm -hmm. while you're doing the poses. And I think people resonate with that a little bit more, the people that struggle to... Yeah, yeah, slow down. Yeah, and, yeah, which are the people that need it the most. Yeah. <laughs> I've done a couple of sound baths as well and they're a really good time. Just like obviously the vibration, um, how it affects your body. And yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. So it seems like a lot of what you do, not only for work, but outside of work, um, are things that are very mindful and, you know, very in the moment and very good for your mental health, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely been a progression. It wasn't yeah. always like that. Um, but I guess naturally when you sort of align your life with the kind of things that you value and mm-hmm. what you believe in, it's just easier to sort of slip back into those things. Definitely. And, yeah. So then I usually ask guests how our paths have crossed so I'll let you answer this question. How have we come to know each other? Well, I feel like a bit of a stalker, actually, because um, I don't, you came up on my Instagram 
on my naturopath page mm-hmm. and yeah, I saw your podcast first and then, you know, I did the little stalk and went onto your profile and I was like, she looks really familiar. And then I saw you had a photo at Strong, which is, mm-hmm. for those listening that don't know, um, a Pilates rowing gym and it's around the corner from my house and me and my partner go there. And so then I was like, oh, maybe that's where maybe you look familiar from. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just reached out and mm-hmm. we started chatting from and there. And here we yeah, are. here we are. <laughs> so shout out to... Stevie and Jess are um, strong at Henley Beach. For bringing us together. Yeah. It's a beautiful community that they have created there, I, I will say. You know, yeah. I'd never done any Pilates before or pretty much no rowing before either. I'm not really a cardio kind of gal. But I really enjoy the classes and, yeah, the the people that the um, the gym has brought together is, is really lovely. Yeah, I think so too. I've always been very daunted by gym mm sort of environments and yeah it's very chill there and yeah Yeah. I love it cool so how are you feeling today I am good I think we were speaking off mic how I'm a bit nervous um Mm -hmm. because it's my first time doing anything like that but apart from that I'm feeling good and I'm just excited to share with maybe just a wider community a little bit about my journey yes Flowing on from that, obviously we're going to talk through um, quite a few different things today, but let's maybe take it back to the start of your mental health journey. Um, Mm -hmm. Where are we? What happened? Where are we? What are we doing? (laughs) Uh, It's hard to go back so Mm -hmm. far, I guess, because in hindsight, when I look back, it all started around my childhood. I would say that's when I can sort of pinpoint a moment where I maybe felt like I just didn't fit in or I was different in some way to other people. I mean, not to be like I'm special, but more just like I just wasn't wasn't interested in the same things that people around me were. I found I've always been highly sensitive and really um, respond to the people around me and their energy. And I Mm -hmm. know that I... I know now that I take that on a lot, but as a child, I didn't really know what was happening. So... I've always really felt my emotions a lot. And even though now I see that as a gift back then, you know, I come from a family who we didn't really talk about our emotions. Mm -hmm. So that was more of a burden back then. And Mm -hmm. um, especially, you know, I think I was 10 years old or something. My parents went through a bit of a messy divorce and Mm -hmm. that was sort of, I guess, heightening everything because I just didn't have this outlet to speak and to really feel all my emotions. And I guess maybe if I did feel them, I just felt like they weren't really heard or I just, yeah, I just didn't really know what to do with them. So yeah, that was sort of, I guess, the start of it. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. like, I mean, if I think back to, I mean, I'm a few years older than you, but if, if I think back to then like divorce, when I was a child was like very different to like divorce what it is now. Totally. Do you know what I mean? So it was almost like I can remember when um, I was in primary school, a friend of mine, her parents were getting divorced and it was like this huge thing, but it was like almost like there was a feeling of like shame around it um, from the family and it was like very kept behind closed doors kind of thing and it really affected the children that were involved in that instance. Um, yeah. Whereas now I think it's much more like um, open doors. Yeah, I think it's definitely more normalised and especially with because my parents, they're both immigrants from Portugal. Mm-hmm. So 
especially there in the community that they grew up in, I it was a lot more stigmatised, I guess, because it was a religious community. Everyone sort of knew everyone and it wasn't normal to get divorced. So especially right. it was even, you know, quite different for my parents to move here because they're the only, like my mum's one of like 16 kids. Oh, my goodness. And, wow. I know, crazy. And she's the crazy. only one that lives in Australia. So uh. that was very almost like black sheepy of her to do that and then again to get divorced it was kind of it was that shame feeling or like you know I think they just yeah and I think it's like any bad situation or when two people are bringing out the worst in each other but there's a shame of breaking up or leaving or you know breaking a family apart you kind of just stay in it as long as you can even though it's not good for both of you so yeah it was just very messy and Yeah. yeah it's funny because sometimes when I think you know some like I've heard of like, you know, spoiled kids and they're like, oh, my parents got divorced. And it's sort of sometimes I'm like, not that I'm using that as my excuse for when things went, you know, but that's just, I guess, the moment I can pinpoint of like when things started to get a little bit harder to emotionally process. Yeah. And it's definitely not a blame on my parents because they were absolutely doing the best that they could. Oh, for sure. Um, But yeah, it definitely was like harder back then, I think, whereas now it's... Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, you know, you're, you're, the family unit was going through this and obviously that affects everybody in different ways. Mm-hmm. So you said that you felt as though like you didn't really have, um, I guess, like an emotional outlet or um, a way of being feeling heard in that. Mm-hmm. What was the outcome of that? I think it was I started searching for validation in other things and the only connection I knew was people. So I searched for a way to be validated in how I was, but then that was also more destructive because the people around me weren't giving me the validation and which is so fine. Like, I mean, as a child, you don't really know how to validate someone else's emotions, nor are you responsible for that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I was just seeking out maybe friendships that weren't very healthy for me. You know, even in like primary school, I could see that that was a pattern. Okay. Um, And then that sort of led on to high school. So Mm -hmm. it was the same. It was like I was searching for this kind of love that I think – I wanted, Mm -hmm. even though, you know, I was definitely getting love at home, but it wasn't the type of love that I needed. And then I just was looking for that in other people. And at the same time, I was struggling to connect because I had all these emotions and all these feelings that other people around me didn't seem to, or it wasn't obvious that they had them either. So I think in high school, maybe around maybe 16 is when I started, you know, going out and making friends with people that are a bit older than me. And that's probably when like the party drug stage started because for me it was a way to be able to connect with people and maybe connect with people that I actually didn't have anything in common with Mm. but that was something mutual we had in common and that's what sort of everyone was doing so I jumped on that and it was good for a little while because it was like I do feel that connection but yeah I don't, yeah, I don't know. Anyone who's done party drugs, um, not recommending it at all, would know that it actually heightens everything. So you feel everything a lot more. And after a while, that just became so unbearable. Mm-hmm. And then that's sort of when I turned to smoking weed because it was like I would go out and I would party and I'd have this high and then I didn't know how to bring myself back down. And mm-hmm. that was the way that I would sort of equalize myself. And then I got really used to that sort of numb feeling yeah yeah so when you say you're going out were you going like out to like 
clubs and bars and stuff like that or just like you know out and about with these people no to clubs I remember I went to club 58 I think when I was I North know, Terrace even, no I, it was on Hindley Street okay um it was just like such a dingy bar <laughs> um and they did shots out of like shot glasses mm-hmm. uh, like those sorry test tubes that's oh, what they're called yeah yeah, yeah. same book of shots I remember but yeah I don't I think it was like a friend's sister got us a fake ID just to get in um mm-hmm. every time we went and that kind of started with like going out every weekend whether it was to parties or clubs yeah. and yeah yeah doing things I shouldn't yeah so obviously um you know, you said that you were doing these party drugs. So like, I'll just make an assumption that it was either like, um, what we would refer to as like pills or, you know, something along those lines. Um, Mm -hmm. anyway, so were these people that you were spending time with, were they supplying them? Like, were they getting them for you? It wasn't so much that they were supplying, it's that they knew where I could get them. Oh, so because okay. they were already sort of in that scene, they yeah. were very entrenched in it, yeah. it was just normal or it would be like, I'm getting some, do you want some? So I yeah. never felt the pressure. I never felt like I did it because they forced me to. It was yeah. more just the culture of, you know, if you're going to go out to town at like until three or four o'clock in the morning, yeah. you know, like how else are you going to yeah. stay up for so long or how are you going to really engage with the people around you? And that's what yeah. became yeah the norm yeah yeah and then I guess like like you said like it was a way of connecting with those people and feeling that not validation is not really the right word but just feeling like you were part of something yeah and fitting in I think that's the the theme of maybe my life or my life's journey is always feeling like yeah not quite there yeah with everyone so then obviously you'd have these nights out and then there's a bit of a crash the next day so that's when the weed smoking started to come into play yeah yeah and so was that every time most of the time I would say yeah and sometimes it was even in the same night because Mm -hmm. it was like okay I got to the point where it's like we're not we're not out anymore. I'm at home. I want to start to feel normal again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would mostly just be social. So at first it just started with um, like after going out, but then it sort of turned into, you know, if we just wanted to have a night at home and like watch right. some movies, you know, eat some snacks, yeah. um, <laughs> it sort of just turned into that. And it was just, yeah, every now and then social, even though it doesn't turn you into a social person at all, it would be like, we just sit in silence for like three hours. Yeah. But, yeah, that's sort of how it's it's almost like a like drugs are. They're just a slippery slope. It's It mm-hmm. creeps in so slowly that you don't realise it's becoming an issue until it's too late. And yeah. Yeah. And when, when you're surrounding yourself with people who normalise it, I think that's another thing because you're like, oh, why am I feeling so guilty about this? Like they don't care about it. Like it's obviously fine. Nothing's mm-hmm. going to happen to me. And, yeah, it's just very normalised. Yeah. And like you said, if you're surrounded by people who are, you know, doing it frequently and it's normal, then it seems very normal to you as well. Yeah. So it progressed from, you know, after a night out to on weekends to for a movie night. Mm -hmm. Did it get to a point where it was an everyday kind of thing? Um, not for a while. So it would just sort of be, yeah, maybe like a few times a week while Mm -hmm. I was at school. And then probably two years after I finished school, that's when I sort of had a period there where I wasn't really doing it much and Mm -hmm. was sort of starting to, I guess, find maybe what I wanted to do with my life or just figure things out. And then, yeah, I'd say maybe, maybe it was a year or two after school. 
again, it's like I actually can't even pinpoint the time that it mm-hmm. started happening all the time. But before I knew it, there was no break. It was just like every night I'd get home from work, I'd catch up with a friend or like multiple friends and that's just what we do. And that mm-hmm. was just, you know, that when we're catching up, that's just what we're going to do. It was like an unspoken okay. rule. I Yeah, not a rule, but. Yeah. Just a thing. That's yeah, just, just a the thing. norm for yeah. what you were doing. Yeah. yeah. And did other people around you know that that's what you were doing? They did. But again, because we were young, it just mm. sort of seemed like a bit of a phase. Or I think even me at that point, I didn't realise realize it was an issue because, again, it's a social thing and I'm doing it with people and it was normalised. So I yeah. definitely had some people in my life who weren't sort of around that and they was sort of just thought it was funny because they were like oh the stoner she's like always stoned like but she's so chilled so it's fine yeah. you know, she's not doing anything like reckless with her life yeah but yeah I think definitely like I don't I don't know I like to think my mum didn't know what was going on because I like to think that she yeah was maybe hidden from yeah that but I was doing it at home um, like in my bedroom, which is like detached from the house. Okay. So yeah, it was sort of was still very much in private because also I was a bit ashamed about it. I would never like, or like I wouldn't do it around people that weren't also weren't, smokers. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. So and then I guess that progressed at me hanging out more with people who were doing that because again, it's like I felt normal and yeah. I felt like it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like um, I guess weed can be perceived as like a somewhat of a harmless drug, mm. right? It's got a bit of that sort of reputation. And, I mean, I am, am not judgmental of, of anyone. Um, I think yeah. like everyone has their story and everyone's doing the best that they can with what they have. Mm-hmm. Um, I have personally seen um, people that I love who have you, have been – Using using weed doesn't sound <laughs> right. What do you say? Smoking um, weed, smoking? yeah. <laughs> smoking weed. Taking. I mean, <laughs> I've seen it have a very negative effect on people. Yeah. So I think, and people that I care about very much, I think that I have a, I have a personal opinion where I think it can be harmful because I've seen the harm that it can do. Mm-hmm. But in the same way that I think that alcohol can also be harmful because I've seen the harm that it can do and I I still choose to drink. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, it's all about balance and it's all about, you know, how one chooses to use something, I guess. I don't yeah. know. I, I'm a... glad that you brought that up because that was something I wanted to mention as well is because when people did like, so eventually when my mum did find out, you know, she was sort of like back and forth with like, you know, she was looking things like, bless her, she was looking things up on the internet and she was like, this oh. says it's really bad for you. But I was sort of, and I actually believe that it's a natural substance, you know, like it grows in the earth. I was very in my spiritual era at yeah. that point. So, you know, the hippie pants and the incense and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. And I was like, it's just a part of it, you know, like it can't be bad. It grows from the ground. I just didn't, you know. So the poisonous yeah. mushrooms, you know. <laughs> exactly the same, you know. They must be fine because they're natural. So I actually believed that it was okay. And I look back now and I just think, that anything that alters your brain chemistry is dangerous. And that's why I do think alcohol is dangerous. Yeah. But I'll still occasionally, you know, have a drink. That doesn't 
stop me. But also I know that I could never go back to smoking weed, nor would I want to, because I just have an addictive personality. And I know that about myself now. And I know that I do things all or nothing. And yeah, yeah, there's no in between for me. So, and I think people that are susceptible to that, which are usually people that already have mental health issues, Mm -hmm. should steer clear from it because it's, Again, it's like a slippery slope and I never believed it, but it does just kind of lead you down this rabbit hole of other things. And yeah. Yeah. So uh, you at the, like in, within your story now, we're sort of at the point where you were um, using it every day. <laughs> and how was your mental health at this point? So for a while it was fine. There was nothing... Yeah that ever stood out to me. Maybe for a few years, I think I was okay. But when I look back, it's like still not how I am now. So I definitely think there was still some aspects of like, you know, I was probably highly anxious. And because I was anxious, I was having stomach issues. And that's when I first started seeing a naturopath and I guess became a bit more aware of my body um, and the reaction that it was having because of my mental state. And yeah, so then eventually I got to the point where I didn't think that it was being caused by that because weed has the ability to sort of relax you. And that's what I really liked about it is it's relaxing qualities. And I did have anxiety while I was taking it, but that would almost make it seem feel better. Okay. And it was a bit of like a bandaid for it, but it got to the point where then it was no longer helping me. It was actually making my anxiety worse. And then because I was anxious, even if I hadn't had it for a few hours, that meant that I was constantly doing it all the time. So that turned into not just was I doing it every day, I was doing it almost every few hours. So I would wake up and I would do it. I'd go about my day, I'd go to work. I had, you know, various jobs at this point, but you know, I was doing them all and I was seemingly, I say that it was a functioning addiction because I wasn't, you know, ruining my life. I still had a job. I had a partner. I had friends and, you know, Mm -hmm. all those things. But yeah, it got to the point where it was making my anxiety worse. And I would say the real peak of it was probably about four years ago. I was so anxious and depleted that I got down to just under 40 kilos and I mean I am a short person so but that is still you know that's what I weighed when I was like a child so but I also didn't think I had a problem because I was eating so much I was still eating and you know my mum started to get really concerned because you know like my collarbones and my ribs were showing and Mm. you know she was just like wasn't really sure because she maybe thought it was an eating disorder but then she would see me eat so much so she couldn't really figure out what was what was happening and I think that's the thing it's so hidden because you never think that that's going to happen just from smoking weed and I definitely didn't think that was causing it but yeah I just had like a lot of anxiety my palms would always be really sweaty and Mm -hmm. I was yeah struggling to sleep especially if I like didn't have it like sometimes I'd have to wake up during the night to like do it so that I could go back to sleep because it was just like constant and it got to the point where my thoughts were just so dark that I just had to do it all the time because that's the only thing that was like pacifying really, yeah and wow. so it really yeah. had a control on you at this point it did and again I at that time I didn't think it was an addiction but mm-hmm. obviously in hindsight it was and So at that point, not only did I have my own mental health issues, um, the partner that I was with at that time, he was also a really heavy weed smoker Mm -hmm. and he started to show signs of psychosis and schizophrenia, which is obviously drug induced. So 
So to someone yeah. who maybe doesn't know that much about it, like what sort of symptoms or signs are you, were you seeing at that point? It started, again, it was like it started really slow and mm. then it started trickling in. So it started just with a couple of, just with a bit of paranoia. So it would be like, oh, I think this car's following me or this car's been following me for ages. And I'm like, oh, they're probably just taking the same route home, you know? Yeah. Like I kind of brushed it off and then it would, it started to sort of escalate. Like I remember once he came home to my, came over to my house and, you know, he was supposed to be there like two hours before that and it took him ages to get there and when he got there he was just in such a state that he was like, I really want to talk to your mum because I want to like – I think he was maybe trying to get some validation or someone to tell him it was okay. And then, so, you know, he was like to my mum, you know, I think this car has been following me. Like, it's always the same car. And when I pulled into this street, the car was there. And, you know, my mum was trying to be very, like, not judgmental. And she was like, you know, like, if it's anything, you know, you're safe here. And, you know, like, we'll look into it, you know, like, it's okay sort of thing and try to just, like, calm him down. And then I remember, like, she was like to me after, like, is he okay? Because, like, that was not normal what he said to me. And at that point I started to think, okay, maybe something's wrong because at the start it was just really easy to believe because it was like, yeah, maybe that car was following you because yeah. we share the same roads, you know? Like it's not, it didn't seem like anything sinister. But then it turned into, like, I think people are, like, voice recording me. Um, I wow. think these, like, we'd be out in public and he would think people were, like, speaking about him. And, yeah, so it was just, like, paranoia yeah. um, or and also the fear that people were, like, out to get him, mm-hmm. I guess, in a way. Um, yeah. And then after a little while it sort of turned into, like, hearing voices and, oh. yeah, probably thinking that his mind was telling him to do something. So, yeah, yeah but he couldn't really distinguish from his own voice to these other sort of darker voices and that's when it really started to take like a dark turn yeah Yeah. and so obviously that would have had an effect on you as well totally I think naturally I take on with most of my partners the caregiver role Mm -hmm. and so I was trying to look after myself and really just keep myself alive the best way I could and then I was also trying to look after him and make sure that he was safe every day and that nothing was happening to him and soothing him and you know just Mm -hmm. everything when really my life was falling apart like internally I just felt so depleted and didn't yeah yeah, I just felt like everything was just crashing down yeah Yeah. and I mean being in that caregiver role there's a huge energy out Mm. you know and of course we do this for people that we care about and people that we love but it also we have to be so mindful on on how that's you know affecting us and when you're already in a, a state where you know, you're not at your healthiest physically or mentally, it's even harder to provide that kind of care. Yeah, you just don't have like anything to give at Mm. that point when you're already struggling to look after yourself and you're using, like you said, all that mental energy Mm -hmm. um, to give out to someone else. It just becomes draining and I just felt like there was no joy in my life anymore. It was all just survival mode and not just for me. It wasn't just how can I keep myself alive. It was like how can I keep him alive and still make life somewhat, you know, like happy or Mm – but, yeah, it wasn't. Like it was just a very Mm -hmm. low existence I would say. Did it ever get to the point where you actually started to feel a bit paranoid as well? Like I can imagine that having someone Mm. around you who's saying those things – would like if it was me I feel like I would start being like oh wait I did see that white Camry drive past you know totally that's exactly what happened at the start like for a while I started to believe it and then 
like, you know, if he would try and explain it, like if, if I was there and he was trying to explain it to his mum or his family, I would back him up because I'd be mm. like, you know, it is like it could be happening. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. but then I'd be like, but why? So I was really having this internal battle because mm. I wanted to believe him because why wouldn't I? Like, you know, I loved him and, yeah, I just didn't have any reasons to doubt him. But then I was really fighting against myself because I'm like, but this is not rational. And mm-hmm. that's it was it was actually the push and pull of that, of fighting internally with myself that I found the hardest of like, mm-hmm. I want to believe this and, you know, and mm-hmm. I think it. I obviously never reached out to like friends at that point because like no one knew what was going on. Like from the outside, we looked like a happy couple, mm-hmm. but I never reached out because I just knew that we were so far removed from anything that they would ever consider normal that it was almost too late to reach out and to tell them what was going on. And I think that's how people get isolated is because I wasn't talking to anyone. I had sort of normalised a lot of that for myself and I was like maybe everyone feels this anxious all the time or maybe everyone always has these feelings of like dread or, you know, like that something's bad's going to happen. And I just, yeah, because I hadn't spoken to anyone, that's just what I thought was the norm. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. what you said. That I do believe as well. This is how people do become isolated. Yeah, you know, it's not a conscious choice. It's no. just what happens when there's shame and mm. guilt around the experience that you're living. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can see. I am glad that I guess maybe on that day he brought my mum into it because she could. I guess she, I was like confiding in her a lot more and she was probably the only person I was talking about it with until I remember I had just started uni um, to do my naturopath degree and I was still smoking at that point, but I definitely was at a point where it's like, okay, I'm not in a happy relationship. I know I need to change my life. I know I can't be smoking weed if I'm going to be looking after other people's health and my own health, but I just didn't know how to get there. And I made friends with, um, she's my beautiful friend now, Charlotte, Mm -hmm. and she was the embodiment of the life that I wanted to live. You know, she was very spiritually connected. She was super grounded, like very level-headed and yeah, she was just really living the life that I wanted to live. And so I started to get really inspired by her and we started to become quite close. And then I remember one day, because I, I was just, she could, she can see everything. She can see it in my eyes. She can see it in my energy. And mm-hmm. I was just so down one day. And I remember her being like, what's, you know, really what's going on? And I was like, okay, you know what? I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to tell her everything. And I think she was just so shocked because she was like, this is not normal. And the fact that you've been living like this for so long, thinking maybe that it was normal, like, Yes. And that's Mm -hmm. when something really switched in me because I was like, yeah, wow, I'd never actually told the full story to anyone. Having that, like, it's almost like she was able to hold a bit of a mirror up Mm, and be like, let's actually have a proper look at like what's going on here. Yeah. And I guess it was inspiring to see, okay, well, I'm currently at this point in my life and Mm -hmm. I want to be over there where she is what do I have to do to get there, you know, and to live this aligned life that I want to live? Because, you know, the more I got into yoga and spirituality, meditation and, you know, like the values and philosophy of yoga, I knew in myself, like I knew that I wasn't living the life I wanted to live and that what I was doing wasn't aligned with the person I wanted to be. But you're so deep into it that what you know and what you do is just so different because it's, yeah, I just didn't know how to climb myself out of the hole. So I guess she was really like a catalyst for me to be like, okay, well, she's not smoking weed every day, so maybe I should stop doing that. Or Yeah. Yeah, so. And is that then what 
what happened? Like what what was the outcome? Yeah, I'd love to say it was like just as easy <laughs> and like cut and dry as that. But yeah, yeah, it was just a bit of a process. She yeah. introduced me to her Reiki healer who I started to see. And um, For one of the... anyone who doesn't know what Reiki is, oh, I'm going to jump yeah. in. What is Reiki? Um, so it's hands-on energy healing. Mm-hmm. So it's not limited to that, but it's basically harnessing universal energy and the energy that's already in the field around us to... Um, I don't want to say heal someone, but to shift things. So if you've got blockages or you're holding on to emotions and things like that, and the healing actually doesn't come from the person because I do Reiki now myself. Mm -hmm. And if I was to put hands on someone and give them a healing, it's nothing that I'm doing. I'm just being basically the conduit for the healing to come through me and out through my hands. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can feel things. So sometimes it's like a heat that comes from your hands. Um, With other people, sometimes there's like a pulsating or like a cold sometimes there's nothing at all when you can't feel it mm-hmm. but yeah hopefully that's a good yeah, description yeah I think that was a good description <laughs> so you got introduced to her Reiki healer yes yeah. and so I started going there but one of her rules is you can't drink or take recreational drug- drugs 24 hours before or after your appointment okay and the first thing I thought was how the hell am I going to do that how am I going to go 24 hours without doing that and well, 48 wasn't it I think it was 24. Oh, just before? 24 before. Oh, yes. Yes, Sorry, of course. I was like, wait, I can do math. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So 48 hours without. Of course. And then... So I w- at first I was like, oh, I'm just going to reschedule my appointment because I need to be mentally prepared for this. And then I finally got myself to the appointment and I think I maybe maybe I gave it like 12 hours before and that's probably the longest I went in years without doing it. But wow. I was like, that's pretty much as long as I'm willing to go without it. Like, mm-hmm. So I went to the appointment and like after I'd had a few appointments with her, you know, it's like she was like the sort of hard, tough love that I really needed. And she was like, look, I know what's going on here. I can sense this. And Mm -hmm. if you really want to grow spiritually, if you want to be a good yoga teacher, if you want to live the life that you like are trying to manifest, this is not going to cut it and you're going to have to stop. And I remember thinking, well, I could stop. Like I don't have a problem. And I remember once she said (laughs) to me, okay, well, if you don't have a problem, why can't you just stop then? And I remember I started going, I didn't notice this, but she was like, my neck started going all red. Like I was having an instant anxiety response just from her saying, you need to stop smoking. Because (sighs) at that point, I still didn't even think I had an addiction. I just thought I can stop if I want to, but I don't want to. Yeah. (laughs) So this is really still in my hands and I'm still driving the car here. Mm. But actually that was the moment I was like, wow, yeah, I actually do have a problem because I can't just stop. And then I started opening up to her, I guess, about things that were going on with my partner. And, you know, like I was looking for healing, not just for myself, but for him because he wouldn't get himself there to anyone like that. So I was basically trying to deliver the healing through her. So all the information and the, you know, tips and encouragement that she was giving me, I was then trying to go home and give that same thing to him because I really wanted for both of us to like move through that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what I found the hardest is that he wasn't willing. He almost had like a barrier or a wall up that was like, I know that this is causing my issues, but I'm choosing not to believe that. And it just got to a point where it was like, well, I can no longer continue to be dragged down by this because not only is uh, like, am I getting dragged down, but also I'm then bringing my family into it and they're seeing me suffer. And I think that was probably the hardest part is, you know, Mm. seeing my dad really upset when I finally sort of told him, 
everything um, because mm-hmm. he was like, what's the point? This is two families that are like being, you know, torn apart by this, you know, mm-hmm. like at some point you can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped. And while I do believe that, you know, we should keep advocating for people with mental health, I just think it got to the point where it was no longer my responsibility or my burden to carry mm-hmm. because I was just trying to keep myself in yeah. that, uh, yeah. And that's position. a hard that's a hard line for a lot of people to balance because, you know, if you love and care about someone, you want to help them. But if keeping yourself in that situation like you were mm. is detrimental to your mental health and your physical health, then you have, you know, you have to make the right decision of for what's best for you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I also don't think I'm qualified to help, yeah. so, you know, like I think there's so many more people out there that would do a better job of helping him than me. So I was just yeah, mm-hmm. I had to focus on myself. So I sort of cut those cords. Mm-hmm. I slowly started cutting down. And then it was just like one day where I was like, you know what? I'm just so sick of my own shit. Like I'm sick of my excuses and I'm sick of sort of playing this like victim in my life. Like what's stopping me from just giving this up? So mm-hmm. I basically threw away everything I had left in my house and yeah. I remember I was on uni holidays or I was going to be in a few days. So I basically just booked a flight to Townsville to visit my best friend because I knew that um, I wasn't going to have access to it there. And I knew that that was going to be the best way to stop is to, one, surround myself by someone who's really wholesome and doesn't even make me think about that, but also somewhere where I can't access it because I don't even want the thought of it around me. Wow. That's a really good step to have made, though, because, you know, you've removed everything from your house and then you've removed yourself from, I guess, the environment in which that if you were to decide that maybe you did want to, you know, dabble, mm. you can't yeah. get it. So that's real, like, you know, very smart on your yeah. behalf. It did feel like a really good decision. And then, you know, I was just in, you know, nice weather. I was near the mm-hmm. beach. I was sort of like going through the hard detox symptoms, but mm-hmm. also I was doing it in a really like kind and loving environment yeah. with someone who I really loved. Um, and how so- long were you there for? I think I went for about a week and a half because we had two weeks for uni. Yeah. And I think I got back like just the day before I had to go back to uni. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there was obviously, you know, it was still hard. I wouldn't say like physically I didn't realise my body was going to have so many symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, the withdrawal from something that you've just okay. known for so long. What sort of symptoms were you experiencing? Um, so it was like really intense sweating. So especially at night I would get like I'd wake up and my sheets would be soaked And I was like really nauseous and I couldn't eat because basically all my appetite was coming from smoking weed. Mm. So then when I didn't have that anymore, I had to relearn the natural process of being hungry and eating. Um, So I don't really think I like I didn't I ate like a few proper meals probably, but the rest was just like little snacks. And yeah, yeah, um, but that was probably the worst of it. I'd say the sweating was pretty uncomfortable. I was probably a bit like more moody and irritated, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I also felt really good because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling so much better than I was before. Even though this is hard, it's still, Mm. yeah, it's still better than how I was feeling. So yeah. yeah. It's interesting because I mean, of course, like now that like we're talking about it, it makes sense. But when I think about like withdrawal symptoms, I don't think about it for weed. Yeah. Like when I think when do. I think of that, I think about for, you know, like, like meth or heroin or something yeah. like that. That's what I think when I think of withdrawal symptoms. But of course it, it, you would have a, a similar experience with weed or alcohol or 
tobacco, any of yeah, these anything things that's as well. built up in your system, really. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say like it wasn't anything unbearable. It wasn't yeah. like I guess what I've seen depicted in the movies, in movies yeah, yeah, when someone's like on hard drugs. But yeah, yeah it was just uncomfortable, really. Yeah. yeah. So then when you came back, um, so you'd had a week and a half of not smoking, which was the longest time that you'd gone in. Yeah, maybe eight, eight or seven years. Yeah. Yeah. What were what happened after that? I think just after that, it was just a natural progression of relearning everything. So it was like mm. relearning to sleep properly mm-hmm. without being knocked out, basically, um, which I found really hard. I would always wake up, you know, in the middle of the night and never be able to go back to sleep. Um, but, yeah, just getting back to the healthy foundations of the things that made me feel good. So looking after my body, I just started, like, exercising again and mm-hmm doing yoga and getting back into meditation, I was like, wow, there's actually a lot going on in my mind. When I was sitting in meditation, I was like, this is so different to when I was really dulled down because Mm. I'm like, wow, I've got a lot of thoughts in there that (laughs) weren't happening before. Um, But yeah, I just started to get back to what made me feel good. And, And that unfortunately meant sort of detaching myself from some people as well, like the circle around me that were maybe not the best influence on me. Mm-hmm. I think that was a really important factor of mental health is that you really are who you surround yourself with. Um, so I started, you know, making friends with like a girl from school. We went to high school together and we'd sort of lost contact, but then we went to the same gym. So then we started hanging out a lot and now she's one of my best friends. Um, so just was making more like genuine connections that weren't based off that. Or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that were more. And it can be really hard to make those decisions to remove yourself um, like from friendships or even if it's family members um, when you're trying to look out for yourself in that space. But it's so important. And yeah. um, like I know I've talked to other people on the podcast as well who've had to make those kind of decisions and they are hard but definitely yeah. worthwhile. I think as well there's a bit of a maybe a negative thought about when it comes to your family. So, mm. you know, if your family are the negative ones that are putting you in this headspace or contributing to, you know, a part of your mental health, not to say that anyone's ever the cause of the yeah. soul thing, but you really do have to remove yourself and you have to do what's best for you. And we almost feel a responsibility to people either because we've known them for so long or they brought us into this world, whatever it is, but really our responsibility lies within ourselves because those people aren't living in your body and those people aren't going to create, you know, experiences or like Mm. the life that you want to live. So you really have to be the one that's like driving that. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so then we started to make some new changes. Mm -hmm. Did we have any slip-ups along the way? So I did have one slip-up where it might have been close to a year that I hadn't done it. Wow. And then I was just at a friend's house and we were just like drinking some wine and doing some painting, nice and wholesome. And then um, her housemate had some and, yeah, I was like, oh, I'll try it. And then straight away I was like, oh, I hate this. Like this is, yeah, I just don't like that feeling of being really foggy in my mind, which I didn't realise that's really how I was. But I think when my mind became clear, Mm -hmm. it was very easy and it was more normal for me to be in that state rather than to be in the other state. So I realised I actually didn't like it and since then I haven't and that was over three years ago. Wow, that's incredible. And even just the fact that it was a year before that as well like yeah that's amazing to have been able to essentially go 
like what like cold turkey essentially since you came back from that trip right yeah yeah Yeah. and I just didn't have like I wasn't around anyone that made Mm. me even think about it so that just made it really easy as well Mm -hmm. but yeah I think for years and probably still now I still carry a lot of the guilt and the shame around that experience of Mm. you know how did I even let myself get there or how Um. did this happen and because I mentioned that um, your last guest on the podcast, Mitch, he was mm-hmm. talking about, you know, like even when you come from a good family, you know, that has nothing to do with how you end up here. And I think for so long that's what I felt most guilty about is, you know, my parents came here and made so much effort to move countries to give me a better life and, you know, they raised me with really good morals. So I just had no idea how, you know, how I'd sort of gotten myself into that position. But you, it really is just all about the people that you surround yourself with and, you know, it's all about your mental state and, you know, mental health is so much more complex than just Mm. having an illness or, you know, like being in a bad environment. There's so much more like, you know, now that I've really researched it, it's like the chemistry of your brain, you know, your emotional state. Mm. It is, you know, your environment as well, but it's just so complex and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's so many factors. So there's no shame about, you know experiencing any kind of mental health because you always think oh, it's not going to happen to me or it's not going to happen to someone I know but it can happen so easily and quietly that you don't yeah realize. yeah it doesn't discriminate sadly so yeah. so then what other things that you do now on a day-to-day or a week-to-week to take care of your mental health um so since so since starting my studies as a naturopath I've realized how much looking after your body impacts. So, you know, gut health for one, you know, like started like eating better and cutting down alcohol. That was definitely a big driver as well because, you know, how we all have anxiety and then the next day I'd be like, oh, yeah, I just like never feel good after drinking. Um, So just, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just started to get into like better habits. So Mm -hmm. I think now what sort of keeps me really grounded is Reiki Mm-hmm. So healing energy, doing meditations, yoga, being out in nature and probably my partner, Trent, he is just like an angel and Aww. yeah, he's just a really good foundation that keeps me grounded. Like he's just very wholesome. His whole way of seeing the world is just really beautiful and mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, if I'm having a bad day, he'll really kind of just bring me back to earth and just remind me that mm-hmm. like I'm doing well and, you know, look at where you, you know, look at how you've come yeah. forward in life. And yeah. So I think just reflection as well. Like, you know, the other day I was reading through my old journal entries of stuff that I had written Ooh, when I was really I going that. through. Yeah. Like the yeah. thick of it. And I'm so glad that I wrote them because I was like, did I actually write, this must be an out-of-body experience because I cannot, like, one, remember ever feeling like this or, two, I can't even remember who that person was. Like, it just felt like I was reading someone else's diary. And it was just so profound to read that and be like, wow, that was me and I've come so far. I love that because, I mean, I don't know if you know, but I'm like a massive diary keeper. Mm, I have put this on my stories and stuff before. They're all in the little cupboard there. And I like to occasionally have a flick <laughs> back through and it's, it's yeah, it is a really good tool to have to be able to look back and and see how far you've come. It and is. I, it's not just the therapeuticness of writing mm. down. It's also, yeah, like you said, looking back on it um, mm-hmm. because 
I think that's how we sort of measure growth as well is when you don't no longer feel those ways. And yeah. yeah, I know in mine, like I can tell what kind of state I'm in by the state of my handwriting mm. as well. <laughs> like that's a huge one for me. Like if it's like, you know, like big sharp letters and it's like dark on the page I'm like that wasn't a good time <laughs> and other times it's all like nicely like flow like almost like cursive handwriting and it's nicely spaced out and I'm yeah. like okay I was in a good place there <laughs> or when you're like a bit rushed because there's like I can tell when I have so much to get out because <laughs> it's like I can barely read my own handwriting but um what's funny is I looked back on one of my journal entries and I had literally just written I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. Oh, go for it. I wrote the word fuck like yeah. probably like 40 or 50 times. That's all it had on the page. Oh, and wow. I was like, wow, I was really going through it then. <laughs> that was a bad day. Yeah. yeah. This is why yeah. I, always, I always date my diary entries as yes, well. Like I always make sure I write the date at the top. Um, but then the, the on the flip side, the bad thing about my diaries is that sometimes like I, I like to write lists. Like I'll be like goals for 2020. 16 or something and I'll write them all out and then like I go back and I'll be like oh I didn't didn't tick that goal off it was the same goal that was last year but I try to work on that but always like I think learn to speak fluent Indonesian has been on my to-do list for just about forever that's okay you can just move it on for next year yeah I'll just I'll chuck it on for 2023 she'll be right um it's funny I got really into manifesting at Mm -hmm. some point I don't remember when but um Oh, I think I was listening to, there's this podcast called Unblocked or something, I think. Anyway, they were talking about manifesting and, you know, write down the list of, you know, like the life that you imagine living and also the partner that you want to call in. Mm-hmm. And I wrote down, you know, all these traits and, you know, I was like, you know, living by the beach and, you know, having a really good job and like, you know, something that I love and enjoy doing, all of those things. And then when I think back to it now, you know, my partner was exactly who I'd called in and, you know, we're like living by the beach. Mm -hmm. I am like stoked to be living every day. Like I feel like there's actually zest for life now and it just feels like all those things that I manifested actually came true. Yeah. So again, it's like nice to be like, wow, I wanted the life I have now. And that's sort of what I try and remind myself on hard days is that Mm -hmm. like things might seem hard in my perception of where I am right now, but I asked for this life and I'm actually living the full experience of like where I wanted to be. So I'm actually quite lucky to to be yeah. here. Oh, I yeah. love that. <laughs> I have um, read a little bit into manifestation, but I haven't got full blown into it, but I feel like I really, I, I did buy this manifestation board, board. which has got <laughs> two empty. things stuck on it. And I, this is why yeah. I think, this is why I still haven't learned Indonesian because it's not my freaking manifestation you got to put it up there. Yeah, but honestly, it's a rabbit hole. You have to really get like deep dive into yeah. it and spend lots of time because, you know, I just write those little <laughs> lists when I'm like just a bit bored or something, but they never came true because it's like, yeah, I guess my intention wasn't really there. Or Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you obviously do lots of things just in your day to day that help to take care of your mental health. And I think that's, you know, a big part of, you know, what I talk about is that it, it, it's, a, it's your life. It's, it's the things that you do every day mm. um, that all amount to your health, whether it's physical or mental. So, you know, it's what do you do every day? What do you do every week? What do you do every month? It's what do you watch? What do you listen to? What do you read? Who are you surrounded by? All of those things make such a huge impact 
And even though we're the drivers of our own life, the things that surround us are so, so important. Yeah, Um, And I think that... I don't feel like we highlight it enough. Is that saying of, you know, you are, that you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. Like, it's so true. Like, we still have power in ourselves to drive our life, but there is so much that comes from those who are around us. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, like really subtle influences we get from people like picking up cues or like, you know, Mm. energy. I believe we all have the power of feeling energy, whether Mm. we're in tune with that or we sort of choose to suppress it. I think we all still have that power. So sometimes you don't even need to speak words to people and you get a sense of who they are and how Mm. they make you feel, whether it's like safe or supported. And it's not always just about, you know, what you get from that person. It's just like how they make you feel. And yeah. it's so true. It's like what you do every day, not just when you feel bad. Like, you mm. know, like looking after my mental health is not just about, oh, I feel shit today. I'm going to do these things. It's like, no, I need to do those things every day because then I won't have as many bad days. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Definitely. It's preventative. Yeah. That's <laughs> what we're all about. <laughs> yes. So what do you wish that you could tell your past self or advice you might have for someone who might be going through something similar to what you did? I think probably I'd just give myself a really big hug. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, back then because I think I really just needed to know that it was going to turn out okay. And even though people were telling me that it would, I never really believed that it would be okay you know, because when you're just so in the trenches, um, yeah, yeah, it just always seems like a lot. But I guess I also want people to know that there's no guilt and shame in hitting rock bottom because I always think that if I had never hit that rock bottom, I never would have got tired of my own shit. And I know that when situations are like, you know, really unfortunate or really bad things happen, it's really crappy to just be like oh things happen for a reason but I do think that there's always a higher purpose for why things happen and that's why I look back now and I don't regret going through that because I truly think it makes me the person that I am today and I just had to really get tired of myself and tired of my excuses Mm -hmm. and you know living in misalignment to yeah crawl myself back out so I would just say to anyone that like it's okay and there's no shame because really dark times always have to bring out lighter times in the end Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's beautiful (laughs) and I think like you know we've just talked through you know your life you know it's (laughs) been you know you and you have you know gone through something that you know, a lot of people may not have or might not necessarily have much of an understanding of. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's going to be really helpful to those people who might be listening to hear what it was like, you know, for you going through that so that maybe it might be able, we might be able to be more empathetic because I yeah. think that there's definitely a bit of like a stigma that is attached to people who have an addiction. Yeah. And so I think it's definitely going to help um, break some of those barriers down. Um, And I think that, you know, I'm blown away by listening to, you know, what you went through and, and, you know, the slow, like you described it as like the slippery slope to to get where you were, where you were using, you know, all throughout the day and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, waking up and having to use again to get to the point where you've now like clawed your way out and rebuilt yourself and created this 
beautiful life around you that is very supportive of you know the things that you value and who you want to be as a person and I think that that's really inspirational thank you (laughs) and I think it's been really therapeutic sharing because I've always had a pretty active social media platform and I've spoken really well sometimes openly sometimes more Um, you know, cryptically about, you know, Mm -hmm. things I might be going through or really more lessons that I've learned. And I had someone come up to me because my page used to be not under my name. It was like like Love and Light Yoga. And I had someone come up to me and they're like, are you Love and Light Yoga? You know, like I read your like quotes all the time and the stuff that you say. I just want to let you know, like it's really helped me through like hard times. And that was really beautiful because it was like, you know, what I put out there might only resonate with like one person but that's okay because that one person probably needed to hear it and Mm -hmm. I know I've picked up a lot of things along the way that other people have shared with me and they've passed down their wisdom and Mm -hmm. I know that those things have really stuck with me yeah cool now you said that you'd brought a little quote in with you that you wanted to share because it really resonated with you so I'm going to ask you if you'd like to read that one to our listeners yes um it's from David Brooks and this is sort of loosely what he said because I did write this quote down from a podcast so (laughs) some of it you know might not be exactly how he said it but okay um so it goes it's one of the inescapable truisms of life that you have to lose yourself to find yourself Give yourself away to get everything back. Suffering carves into you and reminds you that you're not the person you think you are. It carves through what you thought was the basement of your soul and leaves these cavities below and you see deeper into yourself than you ever knew existed. You realise that only emotional and spiritual food will fill that darkness, so you have to find a bigger and larger life. The normal reaction to a season of suffering is to try and get out of it and just address the symptoms. You have a few drinks, listen to a few sad songs and move on. But the right thing to do in the moments of suffering is to stand erect in the suffering. Wait to see what it has to teach you. Understand that your suffering is a task that if handled directly and with the help of others will lead to enlargement, not diminishment. The valley is where we shed the old self so the new self can emerge. There are no shortcuts. I love that. There are no shortcuts. There aren't. Yeah, I think it really sort of encapsulates my journey and I know that really helped me when I listened to it, so hopefully it helps someone else. I'm 100% sure (laughs) that it will help somebody else. And I just want to say a huge thank you again for you coming over today and and sharing all of that, um, not only with me um, but my listeners and the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really opened myself up here, trauma dumping. (laughs) But I think there is, um, like I have found in sharing my own story, that there is like almost like a sense of relief or like a an open bearing to like I've put it out there this is part of this is part of me this is what I've been through this is who I am and mm-hmm. um I found that quite therapeutic so hopefully you have totally. the same, no, the I same think so. feeling. And I think what I was going to say before is I've never openly shared about addiction so even mm-hmm. though I've talked about you know things I've gone through I think there was always still again that like I didn't want people to view me in a different way so I yeah. think now I'm really just letting go of that because it's like I am who I am because of these things and it's nothing to be ashamed of so thank you for having me because this has been a bit like a therapy session and I yeah I feel much lighter now and I hope that someone takes something from this 
Good. And I know that someone will take something from this and it won't just be one person. There'll be many people listening in today who are grateful um, that you have shared and that you have put it out there because, you know, people out there, you know, you're not alone and there are people Mm -hmm. who've been through it and who are going through it um, and, yeah, I'm just very grateful to have had you here today and um, looking you. forward to seeing you at Strong again soon. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully soon we can do a little team workout. Definitely. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. Actually, before I go, how can people find you? Oh, okay. I have a few social yeah. pages. Um, so I'm on Instagram as Stephanie double underscore P-A-C-H. And then I've got my two businesses, Eclipse Yoga and Eclipse Wellness. So I share various things on various pages. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to come do yoga, mm-hmm. come find me for a class. And mm-hmm. yeah. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I'll put all the links um, in the show notes as well. So you can find it there. Or um, obviously, um, Stephanie will be tagged in the stories and the post on Instagram as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, now this time I'm really going to let you go. (laughs) My bad. But again, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Please remember to like and share and subscribe and do all the things that mean that more people can find this podcast. And I'll see you next week. Doey! If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. Even better, if you know someone who might benefit from listening to it, please tell them all about it. You'll find more information from today's episode in the show notes. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on High Tide, Low Tide, please email me at lisa, spelled L-E-E-S-A, at hightidelowtideau.com or DM me on Instagram at hightidelowtideau. See you next time.